Thanks for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's Saturday webinar for October 3rd, 2020. The topic of today's program was the enduring American question of, did slavery cause the Civil War? Our moderator, Dr. Chris Burkett, professor of political science at Ashland University, was joined by Dr. Jason Stevens, also of Ashland University, and Dr. Andrew Lang of Mississippi State University. Thanks again for listening. Uh, the series that we are uh, exploring this semester has to do with fundamental questions in American history and government. Uh, and this morning, uh, the question uh, that will be at the center of our, our conversation, uh, a conversation that will include all of you, uh, is did slavery cause the Civil War? Um, our moderator uh, today is is Dr. Chris Burkett, but I, I'm told that he's um, he's having some technical difficulties right now, so he'll be joining us shortly. As soon as he does, I will be uh, I will be handing over the the reins to uh, to Dr. Chris Burkett, uh, who of course is a professor of political science at Ashland University and the uh, the director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program uh, here at the Ashbrook Center uh, at Ashland University. Uh, joining me also is uh, Andrew Lang. Andrew Lang from uh, Mississippi State University. Um, Andrew, it's a, a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you for, for joining us for this conversation. I know this is a topic that, that, you, uh, that you've thought a lot about, you've worked a lot about, and um, I, I know that you're an expert on this, uh, this, this question, so thank you so much for, um, for joining us here this morning. Thanks very much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Me too. Me too. Um, my name is Jason Stevens. I'm director of, uh, of teacher programs at the Ashbrook Center and visiting assistant professor at Ashland University. And uh, so as we, uh, as we um, start this, this conversation, um, again, we're still waiting uh, for our uh, distinguished uh, moderator uh, to, uh, to join us, uh, Dr. Chris Burkett, who's having some technical difficulties. Uh, Jeremy, if you wouldn't mind maybe forwarding um, him the email with a new link. I uh, just got a message from, from, uh, from Chris via, via text. We're trying to work that out. So in the meantime, um, Andrew and I will just have a conversation here. Um, so the question is, did slavery cause the Civil War? Uh, and that gets me thinking, Andrew, I don't, I don't know about you, but my answer is simply well, yes, of course. Why have a conversation about that? Why, why spend the next you know hour and fifteen minutes or however long this will go this morning, um, getting to the bottom of that question? If the answer is is simply yes, that may be um, what many are tempted to uh, to do when it comes to trying to answer that question. Um, is that sufficient? Is is it enough just to say yes and and leave it at that at the end of the day and and move on, or or is this something that is maybe there's there are more layers here than than what may appear um, at first blush. I mean, if I'm going to be a smart aleck about it, uh, of course it's mm -hmm. it's a one word answer, yes, and we can we can shut this down and go home. Um, but of course, I mean, as with every historical question, um, and this is actually one of the more frustrating questions um, in all of American history, um, simply by by virtue of the way um, the the popular culture frames it. Did slavery cause the Civil War, which presumes that um, the answer could potentially be no. Um, but everybody who lived at the time uh, would not have understood that, would not have understood no uh, as the answer. And so 
Um, I think the better way of looking at this is exactly how you described it. Um, there are many layers to this. Um, I actually had a, this uh, as an essay question for my um, senior level Civil War class last week on their first exam. But I didn't ask, did slavery cause, cause the Civil War? I asked, how did it? Um, so we, we, we just eliminate the um, binary yes or no right at the outset um, and accept the premise that yes, indeed, um, it, is at the, it is at the center, the heart, um, the apex of this, mm. uh, this entire crisis, if not the entire 19th century. And so how? How did it cause it? Uh, why did it cause it? Um, I think will be uh, what we're talking about today. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Andrew, and very, very interesting. I know that um, the Ashbrook Center recently, uh, as part of their core document uh, collection, uh, put out a volume called Causes of the Civil War. The title was Causes of the Civil War, implying, of course, that there was, that there was more than one cause. Um, or at least it would seem that way, right, with the plural, the plural causes. Um, but as you've described, no, there was only one cause, slavery. Um, and every cause of the Civil War, whether political, constitutional, moral, social, or economic, somehow, right, and that how is the question that you've explored with your, your senior students, somehow it always came back to slavery in one way or another, right? So you hear about the, the, the famous states' rights doctrine. Well, a state's right to what exactly? Well, the right to hold other human beings as slaves, or the economic arguments involving tariffs. Well, what's at the, what's at the center of, the, of that? Well, cotton, right? The main product of slavery in, in the South. Um, now, I don't want us to focus maybe on, the, right, on, the, on combating the, the Southern revisionist take on the Civil War that emerged after, after the conflict. Um, I, I don't think, and as, as you've already described for us, Andrew, I don't think that it's, it's accurate to say that, well, there were, there were many causes of the Civil War of which slavery was just one. I also don't think it's accurate to say slavery had nothing to do with the, with the Civil War, right? I mean, slavery was the cause of the Civil War, but as you described, well, it's really, really important to have a clear understanding, a clear picture of how slavery caused the Civil War. So maybe I could ask you to say, maybe can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, before I do, um, I, I should add, I, I always invite my students to consider a technicality here. Mm. And that is there, there is, there is no question, absolutely no question at all, that um, secession would never have happened without slavery. Mm. But the actual fighting, the actual conflict, technically speaking, does not happen um, because of the institution, right? It, it happens when we when we read Lincoln's first inaugural, um, he makes both distinctions, right? It's the it's the question over slavery's expansion leading to secession, but then it's secession itself that leads to war, um, mm -hmm. even though slavery's looming large in all of this. Um, so I think it's important to understand that distinction. But but going back to your question, um, you know. We all know that in, in order to answer any question pertaining to the Civil War era, um, there, there's no better person who can answer that than, than Lincoln himself. Mm. And he actually, you know, in, in, in the second inaugural, of all the amazing words, phrases, sentences, and just the whole, the whole thing, 
there's one fairly innocuous word that I think always stands out to me, at least. It's toward the beginning when, um, or at least, uh, let me see here. Yeah, it's in the second paragraph when he's talking about one eighth of the whole population of the of the U.S. were colored slaves localized in the southern part of the nation. The slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow, and it's the word somehow that I always come back to, um, the cause of the war. Um, David Blight at Yale says that we've been trying to explain the somehow ever since. Um, and it's such a self-evident, simple phrase that Lincoln uses. And, and the genius of that phrase is that he's including uh, white Southerners and black Southerners and uh, free African-Americans in his all new. Mm. There's no there's no judgment. There's no uh, placing one against the other. Everybody in the mid 19th century somehow knew that this is why we're here. Um, but then the next sentence uh, is even more illustrative because he he starts to explain the somehow. It's not necessarily slavery where it existed, at least politically speaking. Perhaps in principle, um, people uh, oppose slavery for where it existed, but politically um, and constitutionally, Lincoln's laying out the argument. It's all about the future of slavery and the future of the of, of the nation to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to, than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. That's the debate of the entire 1850s. Um, what is the national future going to be? What is the role of government in regulating the territories? What is the constitutional argument in restricting or enlarging slavery? Can the federal government even do this? Should it do this? Um, and every federal institution has a say in this um, until consensus and compromise can no longer be reached um, because there is no middle. Uh, there, there is no middle ground uh, by this point. So um, I'll stop there, uh, at least for the time being. But um, mm -hmm. it's that somehow that I think that we should mm -hmm. uh, try to unpack. Yeah, that's really interesting. And something else that has always struck me about Lincoln's second inaugural on this question about right, slavery being the cause of the Civil War, uh, elsewhere in the second inaugural, I don't think you read it in, in your remarks, but if, if you keep reading, you find that Lincoln, who I agree with you completely, right, you want to understand sort of the, the nature of the cause of the Civil War, go to Lincoln. Lincoln refers to, to slavery um, he, he doesn't, throughout that speech, he doesn't say that right, slavery uh, caused the Civil War or Confederate slavery caused the Civil War or Southern slavery caused the Civil War. It's American slavery, he says. That strikes me as pretty significant that this is something that Lincoln doesn't lay on the South, right? As Lincoln said in another place, right, we would be just like them in their position if we came up with their institutions in their time and their place. Um, but it's, it's American slavery that is the great sin that right, God has given to both sides this terrible war to make a recompense. Um, it's not just a Southern institution. The North benefited from slavery as well, materially, economically, politically, in many ways. They share some of that, that guilt, some of that burden for the institution of slavery. I, I see that, that Dr. Chris Burkett 
has uh, has joined us. Our, our moderator is here, Chris. I'm I'm thankful you're here. We were we were struggling along here for the past you know quarter hour or so with me as a moderator. I'm I'm thankful that that um that the uh, that the the real moderator now is uh, is is with us here. Chris, welcome. I don't, I don't think you were struggling at all. I w- I could hear as I was trying <laughs> finally log in officially. So uh, my apologies. Uh, for for uh, the difficulties here, but thanks. And by the way, um, I, I was listening to both of you speak, and uh, you've been doing a great job. Uh, and Andrew, um, I don't think we've actually officially met before, so it's very nice to meet you. I mean, I know of you. Uh, have we met? I don't think we have. Have we? I don't believe so. No. Um, I was. Uh, I, I I did one of the mag sessions or, or programs uh, right. over the summer, but I don't know if I saw you in one of the online. Um, Forum. So it's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah. And I heard, and you started exactly where I was going to start with that line from the second inaugural, that word somehow, because to me, the question, I mean, the, the, the tagline for today's question is, did slavery cause the civil war? Um, <clears throat> and the answer to me is yes, but, but, uh, and you guys have started to address some of the other questions I had in what way, right. And in, in what, in what particular ways did slavery influenced the Civil War? Were there other factors connected to or maybe disconnected from slavery, but but in combination with slavery led to the thing? So I think you guys have been approaching this question exactly the way I was going to start anyway. So keep going. <laughs> you're doing, you're all doing great. <laughs> well, I, I should add, um, Jason brought up a good point. I mean, it, it, it's it's prudent for us to, to recognize that, um, yeah, I mean, all of the all of the northern states, or at least the states north of the Ohio River and north of the Mason-Dixon line, were themselves anti-slavery states uh, politically and legally. But that does not at all mean that that the northern states are uh, resolved in their in, in the system um, by any means. Um, there, there, there's a few facts and figures that that speak to this. Um, Slavery is not a regional institution. It, it's not a. It's not a southern institution. It's not even a national institution. It's a global institution, um, to be sure. Eighty uh, percent of uh, American, co- or, I'm sorry, eighty percent of the American cotton supply in 1860 fed the entire world. Okay, ninety um, percent of Britain and France's cotton um, imports are from the American South, uh, which means the United States. Um, in addition to that, the 1860 um, census records the the asset value of enslaved people at um, $3 billion. That's $75 billion in 2020 dollars. That would place it as the as the 10th largest industry in the entire world um, today. Um, in 1860, that that asset in people uh, as property value uh, was more than American banking industry and railroads combined. Um, and this does not even take into account the land on which enslaved laborers toiled. So <laughs> even if we just want to um, take a take take a purely amoral, rational look at secession, um, we can look at the at the financial figures. There, there's a lot at stake. Um, and I, I tell my students, especially in Mississippi, um, if you go to war and try to defend the system, it's based entirely on people and land and lose. And then two thirds of the state's wealth is wiped out in four years. There's going to be implications uh, that we're feeling down to the present day. Uh, Mississippi was um, per capita, um, the, the nation's wealthiest state in 1860. 
Um, six of the 10 wealthiest counties per capita in 1860 resided in the Deep South. Um, this is, this is the, the, the epicenter of national political, economic, and social power unquestioned. Yeah, that's great. And you're, I, I think, Andrew, you're touching on a distinction that uh, Billy raises in one of the questions. By the way, uh, if you see, can you see the chat, the, the questions? If you can see questions coming in, feel free to address any of those that you feel like addressing. But he raises the conflict or tension between the two economic ideologies, right? The conflict between the two. He uh, mentioned Southern adherence to slave labor versus the North's free labor, which required a change in the Southern society in order to fit a, a modernized industrial world by the 1850s, right? So you've started to touch on, you've talked, mentioned some of the distinctions there, but but... I find it interesting, as you're mentioning, that there is a, though there's a very different economic system, there is a great degree of wealth in both both systems, right, north and south, which means there's a great deal at stake um, in, in the future of the, the nation with regard to the war. So, um, so again, feel free to jump on any of these questions that come in. Um, I, I think I will just right quick. Um, I don't, I don't want to dominate this, but I want to address the slave labor, free labor question. Um, I, I deal with this uh, a lot with my students. I think it's important for us not to think of, of uh, the late sectional crisis as one in which um, we envision an industrial North and a modernizing uh, North versus an agrarian pre-modern South, um, mainly because, or for, for two reasons, um, neither side would have considered themselves either modern or pre-modern. Um, we, we have to think of mid-19th century Americans um, who thought of themselves as incredibly modern, um, directing the, the course of global progress from, from their own democratic system. Um, in addition to that, most Northerners did not work in industrial capacities. 80% of the Northern population uh, lived on small independent farms in 1860. Um, I think Rhode Island is the only state that counted 20% of its laboring class as working in an industrial capacity. So what do we do with this? Um, it's really a question over what kind of agrarian republic is this going to be? Um, is this going to be an agrarian Jeffersonian system, ironically, that, that the North envisions, right? In which the independent, small, self-sustaining farm um, is that going to lead to the, the, the personal independence of the individual and of the family? Or is it going to be a system in which land is dominated by uh, a tiny elite band of oligarchs, really, who control tens of thousands of, uh, of the best uh, cotton planting lands in the whole world, thereby pushing out competition from middle and um, uh, uh, lower class white people, all the while using a bound, coerced, uh, permanent labor system to sustain wealth and influence, I think I think that's the question. Um, I, I'll end there. Well, that was very very thoughtful. And um, um, just reading through some of the questions coming in on the chat, um, if I can back up just a little bit, I mean, part of the reason the question "Did slavery cause the Civil War?" persists, I think, in the minds of some, is because well, there are a number of reasons. When you look at um, the explicit riven, reason given by some of the seceding states, uh, almost I mean, with the exception of a handful, none of them use the word slavery explicitly, right? I mean, some of them do make references to the to the institution, but there's that language of a peculiar institution or 
the right of a state to control its own domestic institution. So, so uh, the word institution seems to equate pretty directly, I think, to to slavery, right? Uh, but there is a question raised, I think, in the chat: to what extent, when the when the various states are talking about their domestic institutions or peculiar institutions, is that a direct reference always to slavery, to the mm -hmm. institution of slavery? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is is yes, absolutely. Um, and if you're if you're looking specifically at the the um, the state articles or declarations of secession, for example, I think we have two documents that we we asked the the audience to to look at in preparation for this conversation uh, from the first two states that had right, so called seceded from the from the union, South Carolina and and Mississippi. Um, the line from Mississippi, I think, is is most clear in this regard. So why are the southern states seceding according to their own words? Mississippi says, quote, this is the first sentence of the second paragraph in their January 9th, 1861 declaration of the immediate causes of secession. Mississippi says, quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, end quote. Right. So there's no mincing of words here. There's no sort of, you know, trying to say, well, we're not slavery has nothing to do with the Civil War. Mississippi is saying it has everything to do with the Civil War. And I would I would just add that um, when I was doing research for the, the core document volume causes of the Civil War, which the Ashbrook Center put out um, last year with a lot of original documents related to this question, um, I went through, I, I read all of the, the articles of secession from the, the seceded states, and it turns out that a clear majority of the, the states uh, call slavery out by name as the principal cause of their separation from the Union. So, for example, South Carolina and Mississippi, we see, right, very clearly call slavery out by name based on the documents that we read. But if you read the articles of secession from Georgia, from Virginia, from Alabama, and from Texas, they all mention slavery explicitly as well. Um, some of them don't mention slavery by name. So, for example, Arkansas doesn't mention slavery, but Arkansas does mention the election of Abraham Lincoln. Um, there's no mention of slavery or Lincoln in the articles issued from Louisiana, Florida, North Carolina, and Tennessee, but those four were basically the, the shortest declarations of secession, where it was just one or two sentences or one short paragraph that didn't say much more than, you know, we're leaving, bye-bye. And that was it. <laughs> um, South Carolina, the first to secede, very clearly connected their cause to the preservation of slavery, as we can see in the documents here. I mean, and they do it more than once. So does Mississippi. I think so. I loved Andrew's point earlier. Well, if you ask Lincoln, what does Lincoln say? In the second inaugural, everybody knew somehow that slavery was the cause of the war. Even the South knew that, as we can see in their articles of secession. If you ask them, why did you secede, you read these documents and they're telling you it has everything to do with slavery. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, leaving no doubt in their own minds about what was the cause of taking this action. If I could just add to this, I mean, this is 100% right. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think the next question is, well, then why? Um, why are they so explicit about it? Um, 
and 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 why are they so willing and eager um, to be so honest? Well, it, it's because to them, this is the self-evident, um, as Alexander Stevens calls it, the self-evident uh, cornerstone. Um, our, our our cornerstone is laid. Our foundation rests upon the the great truth. Uh, this is a quote: uh, the great truth that the Negro is uh, not equal to the white man. That that slavery superior or subordination to the superior race is his natural and moral condition. End quote. Um, this is this is the Confederacy rebuilding and reconstituting what should have been, in their minds, the old Union, right? The old Union, the old Constitution uh, was supposed to allegedly protect this essential foundation of modern life. When the Republican Party was elected on a platform to restrict the spread of slavery, to not enforce uh, the dictates of the Dred Scott decision, um, to not guarantee the expansion of property protected under the Fourth Amendment into the territories, this was a sign that the American cornerstone uh, was being chiseled away. That's what Stevens is talking about here. Um, the old union is dead, but the, the old union's idea, right, it, its essence is still alive. It's just being picked up and put in a new, in a new nation. Um, and he's brutally honest about this. And why wouldn't he be? Um, they, they, they were all honest about it. Um, read all of the um, speeches given by U.S. senators who were resigning their seats in the in the early spring of 1861. They're very clear um, about what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, I, I wanted to assign uh, for today the Confederate Constitution, but you know, things could get out of hand real quick with the amount of reading. Um, <laughs> Slavery is mentioned ten times um, in the in the Confederate Constitution. Uh, it's mentioned at least the word slavery, of course, is mentioned zero times. In the U.S. Constitution, um, liberty is mentioned twice in the Confederate Constitution. They're very clear about what they're doing. Um, they're they're even. You can even read the Confederate Constitution in a way that suggests uh, pretty explicitly that slavery is never going to be eliminated on on the state or federal level. It is consolidated. It is entrenched. It is protected. Even dissent against slavery. You can read the Constitution in a way to see that dissent is outlawed. Um, so great. that's fantastic. Uh, so uh, there are a number of great questions coming in, but based on uh, some of the things both of you have been raising here, I have to ask, uh, maybe from the uh, playing devil's advocate here a little bit, what do you make of two other arguments? One is um, that the vast majority of Southerners, that is, let me put it this way, that the, the the things that are the the ideas that are expressed in in these documents and say in Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech don't adequately represent the 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 vast majority of Southerners who, as in terms of their motives for going to war. So is that true? Is there a disconnect uh, between you know what you might call the average Southerner uh, and those who are sort of uh, the the leaders of the movement? How did how can call them? Uh, Lincoln referred to them in, uh, as what the movers, mm -hmm. the movers of rebellion. So, to what extent is that um, uh, relevant? I guess to the question we're asking today. And then the second point is, what do you make of the argument that um, that uh, you know, for example, as you're both well aware, Calhoun had been making the argument for for decades with regard to the, to the idea of states' rights, including the, the right of a state to constitutionally secede, and that, therefore, uh, whether the issue over which the state secede is slavery or not, 
is kind of irrelevant. It is a right of a state to secede whenever any interest of theirs is being violated. So what do you make of the sort of two counter arguments, if you will, to the extent that they are counter arguments to this, to some of the points that you've been raising? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at answering that. And Andrew, feel free to, to jump in and interrupt me at any point. Um, in regards to the first point, um, that is that the average Confederate soldier didn't really care about slavery, probably didn't own any slaves himself, um, and didn't view the, the cause of the, the conflict in the same way uh, as the, the leaders did. Um, I, would, I would emphasize, though, that, that last point. Well, what were the leaders? What were, right, in Lincoln's words, right, the movers of the conflict? What were they saying? They were saying, everybody was saying the same exact thing. Right, all of the, the 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 political leaders of the of the of the Southern Confederacy leading up to and during the Civil War said we're leaving the Union because of slavery, because of our right to hold other human beings as property. There's no doubt about that, because you know, as Andrew read from Alexander Stevens's uh, famous Cornerstone Address, Alexander Stevens, the Vice President of the Confederacy, is is saying point blank. Yes, slavery is the cause of this great conflict. The cornerstone of our new Southern Confederate government rests upon the self-evident truth that all men are not created equal, that the black race is inferior to the white race. That is what our new government is, is based upon. And the leaders of the, of, uh, of the Southern Confederacy are making the same exact argument. As, as Andrew mentioned, right, read those speeches from senators leaving and resigning their, their seats in the U.S. Congress to take up new positions in the Confederate government. They're saying the same thing. Um, I would go back to what Grant, U.S. Grant, had to say about sort of the common Southern soldier. Um, Grant thought these men were honorable. He didn't look down on them. He didn't want to, you know, trample them underfoot and, and you know, wipe them completely out from the face of the earth after Appomattox. He says, right, we're citizens again. We're brothers again. These were honorable men. However, and Grant adds this addendum, even though I think they fought for a cause, the worst of which any people anywhere have ever fought for. Yeah. But but, uh, but again, I'm, I'm just, it's great, Jason. Uh, very thoughtful. Um, there there is an argument that I've heard uh, that okay. So in in 1861, the particular issue over which secession takes place is slavery. But for decades, again, the groundwork had been laid that there is this constitutional right to secede whenever a a a, a right, a reserved right of a state, of a sovereign state, has been violated un, unconstitutionally, mm -hmm. right, by the national government. So you go back to the tariffs of 28 and 32, right, mm -hmm. there, when secession was first threatened by South Carolina, there was no mention, unless I'm mistaken, maybe you're aware, both of you are aware of something I'm missing. There, the issue anyway on the surface was, it's not about slavery, it's about um, you know, sort of uh, economic uh, favoritism, right, in the policies coming out of Congress that favored northern the northern economy over the South. So, in that particular, uh, you know, push towards secession, which didn't ultimately go through, as we know, the, the you know slavery seems at least not to have been an issue. So, fast forward to 1861, slavery is now the issue. Yes, 
But but what's at play here is a principle that seemed to have been established in the minds of many by people like Calhoun, that whatever the issue is, a state, it is in the Constitution uh, that a state has the right to secede when something like this occurs or something is being violated. So how do you? Yeah, that's no, that's a great right, point. That's a great point. That is right. the, the other that's, an, that's another layer to this conversation. And I, I'm glad that we're, we're getting down here because um, the matter is not simply a, answering this question. Did slavery cause the Civil War? It's not as easy as saying yes or no. Right. There's this additional layer that goes back to a, a principle regarding, well, what is the what is the particular sacredness of a state or what is what is the principle of state sovereignty or to put it another way? Um, what is the nature and origin of the American Union? How you understand that question, right? Whether the states created the union or the union created the states and, you know, what sovereignty do the states uh, have as members of the union? How you think about the union and the constitution and therefore the powers of the states as part of that union, how you think about that is going to influence how you think about this question of, of slavery and the, the causes of the Civil War. Because uh, you're absolutely right. Um, going back to the late 1820s and early 1830s um, and the, the, cri- the nullification crisis right, first raises this, this specter of right, secession of a state uh, leaving the union in order to protect the rights of its own people if they believe that the national government uh, is failing to do that or passes a law that is somehow contrary to the rights of, of their people. Um, Calhoun advances, right? He's the, the, the father of this argument um, in the early 19th century. Um, and I, I know that we, we read the Fort Hill Address um, as, part of a, as part of our um, preparation for today's conversation. Uh, in that in that speech, Calhoun lays it out very plainly, very early on. You know, the third or fourth paragraph or something, I, if I'm recalling this correctly, where he talks about right. What's the fundamental issue? The fundamental issue has to do with the nature and origin of the union. That the states created the union, Calhoun says, and because the states created the union, therefore they have the power to unmake the union. The states decided amongst themselves to join. The union, and therefore they can, of their own power and initiative, remove themselves from that same union if they feel it's no longer serving their rights and interests. Whereas Lincoln will have a very different understanding of the nature and origin of the union. Yeah, right. So from that perspective, this, the, the Constitution was a contract between the sovereign states, and when any of the, the terms of the contract are, are violated, then, you know, as a party to the original compact or contract, the state can remove itself yeah so you have you really see these two different views Mm -hmm. uh so again you know when we think of the sectional division in the country of course slavery is the most glaringly obvious but there also seems to be developing these two different views on the origin of the constitution that are sectional in nature as well so calhoun uh you know clearly the sovereign states the national government is the creature of the sovereign states he says right we, I don't think we assigned uh, Jackson's proclamation on nullification. Jackson makes exactly the opposite argument, right? Uh, you look at the webster hayne debates, you can see both of these views emerging in the famous Senate debates in, uh, when was that, 1831, right? So, so they're, they're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, the, and then Lincoln in his, in his first inaugural address and then in his famous July 4th speech will combat the Calhounian understanding of the Union by saying, 
right? The states did not create the union, but the union created the states and gave them to whatever power that they may possess. That the union is perpetual. Do you find his argument persuasive, Jason? Uh, uh, he kind of makes these uh, that, that argument, his response comes in both the first inaugural and in his message to Congress in special session. Right? Yeah, that's right. Is his argument persuasive, do you think? Um, I, f- I find it pretty persuasive. So he has four arguments for why the union is perpetual in his first inaugural. Uh, he talks about the, the history of the union, the Constitution itself. He talks about um, the nature of politics. And just physically speaking, we cannot separate. But beyond the first inaugural in the July 4th speech, um, consider the Gettysburg Address. Consider the opening line of the Gettysburg Address where Lincoln places the the birth of the the American nation in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. When he says in 1863, um, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Lincoln says the birthday of the nation is 1776. If if you ask Calhoun, though, Calhoun or or Stevens, an Alexander Stevens, the argument would be, no, it's not 1776, but 1787. The union was started, right, with the Constitution. If that's right, if Calhoun's right that 1787 is the birth of the the American nation, then maybe there is something to this question of of state sovereignty and and a legal or constitutional right to secession. But if Lincoln's right about that, you know what, it's 1776, not 1787, that is the more important date in American history. If Lincoln's right about that, then I think Calhoun's arguments um, don't hold water. I'd like to jump in here. This is yeah. um, this is such a critical um, uh, point, and it's it's difficult to teach and it's difficult to understand. Um, a, a lot of this, as as I think we're talking around, what all this is ultimately attached to, um, the the union as as a concept can only be understood if it is attached to the founding, right? And as Jason said, who's founding? Is it is it the founding? Of 76 or the founding of of 87, but I, I saw I saw a question in the in the chat about um, <clears throat> Lincoln's fragment on the Union and the Constitution in January of 1861, and I think that that really uh, helps us in addition to the Gettysburg under, uh, address understand um, uh, what Lincoln's concept of the Union was. What what is its purpose? Um, the, the union's purpose, um, is to protect, right? In addition to the constitution, um, the sacred inalienable rights, the natural rights of all individuals, right? Proclaimed in the declaration of independence. Um, but what we see throughout all these readings, everybody's talking about the declaration of independence, but it depends how and where they're going in the declaration to justify their arguments. Lincoln's going to the essence of the declaration, the spirit right? Um, the, as he calls it in the fragment, the, the philosophical um, nature of the, of the declaration. Whereas Calhoun, Stevens, um, maybe the secession documents, I'd have to go back and look. They're looking at the declaration in terms of process, right? We are, we are um, rebelling against a tyrannical government because our rights are threatened, our, our, our tangible constitutional rights. Mm. That's where the that's where the rub comes, I, I think. Um, and so, I mean, you know, 
to a large extent, they're, they're, both sides are making logical arguments insofar as they go. Um, but as Douglas points out in the reading, if you look at the Constitution and just read it word for word, um, as, as, as a textualist, I mean, he even calls himself a strict constructionist, which is fabulous. Um, the Lincoln-Douglas argument holds because mm -hmm. Calhoun's argument is all subjective. It's all based on inference and supposition. Um, he has to read into the Constitution and read into history to find his theory. Um, whereas I, it seems to me that Lincoln and Douglas look and read the, the literal text of the Declaration, find the purpose of the Union, read the Constitution, find its purpose, right? We the people in order to create a more perfect Union uh, to do what? To uphold liberty, promote the general welfare, um, there's a third one. I, I'm, I, I can't remember it. Um, mm -hmm. you, you understand the point, though. Yeah, yeah but I, if I can jump in there, Andrew, that's that's really, really interesting because I think you're I think you're exactly right about that. Not only does Calhoun have to maybe read things into the Constitution, he has to read things out of the Declaration of Independence. So you mentioned, again, those articles of secession, and you're, you're absolutely right where they look at secession as sort of this constitutional or legal process that they, they go back to 1776 and the Declaration of Independence in order to try to um, make that argument, to make that case on right the basis of original American founding principles. So you read those articles of secession, like in Mississippi or, or South Carolina, which we, we read for today, and you'll see references to right, the consent principle in the Declaration of Independence, or the right of revolution, the right to make and unmake governments, right, for the safety and happiness of the people. You see the, the secessionists, right, using the, those points of the Declaration in order to favor secession. But what none of them mention is the principle that makes consent necessary, right, or that makes the right of revolution just the principle of equality, the principle that all men are created equal, that is never mentioned in any of the state secessionist documents. And it is explicitly rejected by Calhoun in his speeches and documents, right? The Fort Hill Address makes this clear as well. Jefferson was wrong. Jefferson and the founders really believed all men are created equal, and they were wrong to hold that belief. And by the way, Alexander Stevens says the exact same thing in the Cornerstone Address. That's the founders really believed in equality, but they were wrong. They didn't know what they were talking about because the real self-evident truth is all men are not created equal. That's a really great point. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's, that's it. And um, it's not <laughs> yeah. just Stevens and Calhoun. Um, they're all saying this, all of them. Um, Jefferson Davis, who in 1861, at least in his uh, uh, premier speeches, his two uh, inaugural addresses, one in 61, the other in February 62, he stays on the surface of all of this. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't delve down deep into the slavery, equality, inequality issue. Um, he's focused more on the right of revolution. However, um, he gives a, a speech to Congress, um, April 29th, 1861, where he's reminding uh, Confederates exactly what it is they're doing, and the race issue, the slavery issue, the inequality issue, the rejection, the rejection of the Declaration. That's all over his speech. Um, this is natural, organic, self-evident uh, to, to, to these folks. Um, there, there, was, there was a question um, earlier, I think, may, maybe I misunderstood, maybe I misheard. Okay, so we're talking about essentially elites, right? We're, uh, why, why, uh, why are the majority 
uh, of, of white Southerners seemingly going along with this when 75% of white Southerners didn't own slaves? Um, that's a good question. Um, why would they support this? Uh, this isn't really in our readings, but you can find this argument all throughout the, the documentary evidence as well. And, and, and it boils down to one premise. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, in January 1861, the most prominent Southern newspaper, arguably, uh, DuBose Review out of New Orleans, uh, published an article that essentially said, um, or at least made the argument, why should non-slaveholders um, potentially support um, secession in the name of slavery? And he said, the non-slaveholder of the South preserves the status of the white man and is not regarded as an inferior or dependent. He is not told that the Declaration of Independence, when it says that all men are born free and equal, refers to the Negro equally with himself. Um, this, this argument goes back way into the 1830s and 40s, um, and particularly the 1850s. The Richmond Enquirer in 1856 uh, said this, um, boiled it down to this point. In this country alone, and of course 1856, the United States, so in the United States alone, does perfect equality of civil and social privilege exist among the white population, and it exists solely because we have black slaves. Freedom is not possible without slavery. So then we read this into the more constitutional legal arguments that Calhoun is making about the right of a state, um, about the, the nature of the compact union, you then infuse the racial ideas, the ideological ideas of slavery into this. Um, and we get a pretty clear picture about why um, 11 Southern states secede between December 1860 and March of 1861, or April of 1860, May of 1861, right. pardon me. Um, no, that's a, that's a really great point, Andrew. And that actually, I think, provides us uh, an opportunity to sort of segue back to some questions that were asked earlier. Uh, I mean, you're talking about um, from the perspective of the Southern mind, yes, there were the movers, but then why did everybody else go along with it? Those were great reasons. So if I understood it uh, in a certain way, uh, from their perspective, uh, the North is waging war on them, uh, is waging a kind of moral war against them for something that they don't view as necessarily see as immoral. In a certain sense, I'm oversimplifying it. But, but, but there were a number of questions earlier. In fact, there were three in a row of going back to uh, uh, Stacy asked, uh, uh, let's see if I can find it. Uh, Stacy said, slavery was clearly important to secession. How significant was slavery to the Northern decision to engage in war, maintain the Union? Uh, Shailen discussed the motivation for strong Northern opposition to slavery, uh, you know, mentions Horace Greeley and, and others. And then right after that, uh, where was this? Uh, somebody else asked uh, us to discuss. Oh, I missed it. Um, there were three in a row that had to do with talk about the northern motivation with regard in what sense did slavery uh, motivate the north in the war and and, and if before you start to think about or answer this it, it, let me just say if you don't mind this reminds me that calhoun himself at one point said in the oregon speech on the oregon bill that if the union should ever split it would in fact be over slavery but the the onus would have be on would be on the radical minds of the north in particular, the abolitionists. So, so maybe you could talk about there's other view. There is this view that, uh, among some that it was the abolitionists who forced the war 
who forced the hand of Southern slave states into having no alternative but secession. So thoughts on that? That was a long rambling kind of question. I apologize. No, no, no. This, this, <laughs> is, um, this is such a key, a, a key theme to understand. Uh, why did loyal citizens of the United States fight? Um, you know, it, we, we always hear to preserve the union. Well, what, what does that even mean? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's an esoteric philosophical concept. Whereas um, white Southerners, whether they own slaves or not, you can make the argument that they're fighting simply to defend their, their homes and their territory. That's more tangible, right? It's easier to justify a war on the defensive. So how do you justify a war on the offensive? Why not just let them go? Why not, why not get rid of this horrific problem that's roiled the country for five decades let these crazies go and, and, and we'll be done with it. Uh, well, that was actually the abolitionist argument. Uh, we, we finally have a chance to get rid of them. But that is not the majority view. Um, and so, of course, the, the onus is on Lincoln to explain this. And he does from, from day one of the war until the day he dies. And it's critical to understand that nothing ever supplants union as the, as the principal motivation for loyal citizens. What does that mean? Um, he, he goes into this in, in the first inaugural address and pretty much every speech he gives during the war. What does union mean? Um, union is to, to preserve the union means to preserve the, the cherished legacy of the founding generation. What does that mean? A democratic republic predicated on a constitution that upholds individual liberty, restricts government coercion, um, allows the opportunity for individual common citizens to better themselves economically. Okay, well, this still doesn't really answer the question. Again, why, how, how does the Confederacy threaten this? Won't there still be a United States after the war? Well, sure. But the problem comes when we start to recognize that a Confederate States of America and a United States of America are each claiming legitimacy as the true American nation. If the United States allows a Confederate nation to exist in direct contrast, opposition to, and rejection of the founding generation, then people might look at what's happening in North America and say, well, the founders work is not self-evident. What they proclaimed is not universal. Um, there's this alternate course of Americanism that's predicated on hierarchy, um, social order, um, ethnic distinctions. In other words, the Confederacy looks a lot like Europe. Um, this is what it means to uphold the Union. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's an entirely convincing uh, argument. Yeah, that's really well put, Andrew. Thank you. That's very clear. It helps to clarify the issue. Make it crystal clear, actually. That's very helpful. Um, we have a number of other great questions uh, that have come in. Um, Nell asked earlier, why do we think the war occurred in 1861 and not earlier? I think that's a great question. Um, either of you have thoughts on this? Yeah, that is a great question. I'll just, I'll just say uh, quickly, um, it, it could have happened earlier than 1861. And there were several times where it very nearly did. Um, but it was avoided mostly because of the, the statesmanship of, of, um, of American leaders at the time in order to forge a compromise uh, between the two sides um, that 
succeeded in alleviating tensions, right? So I'm thinking specifically about the, the compromise of, of 1820, uh, the compromise of, of 1850, uh, Andrews Jackson, Andrew Jackson, who right, Dr. Burkett mentioned earlier, uh, his response to the, the nullification crisis in the early 1830s, um, the statesmanship of, of men like uh, Clay and, and Webster, uh, old line Whigs, um, Clay, whom Lincoln, of course, called his beau ideal of a, of a statesman, and even Calhoun, right, to, a, to, a, to an extent, you know, being willing to, to engage in these, these compromises in order to uh, preserve the union and stave off uh, secession and, and disunion. So in 1820, um, as I'm sure many of our teachers know, right, the, the, the Missouri crisis of, uh, of that year, where Missouri applies to, uh, uh, for entrance into the union as a slave state, uh, which would um, uh, upset the, the delicate balance among free and, and slave states in, in the U.S. Senate, and whether or not um, the, uh, um, the, the union would accept into its ranks as a new state, Missouri with its, with its slaves and its pro-slavery constitution. Um, right, Southern slave states argued that if Missouri is not admitted with their slave constitution, they will they will leave the union. They will secede. Um, and right, thanks to to the the Great Compromise of eighteen twenty and and Henry Clay, the Great Compromiser, uh, that is avoided with the thirty six thirty line. Um, and the Missouri uh, the Missouri Compromise, which says, of course, I'm, I'm sure most of our teachers know this, but in the the Louisiana Territory purchase any. Uh, territory south of the 3630 line may come in with slavery or may not as they decide, but any states coming in north of that line, with the exception of Missouri, uh, must come in as free states. Missouri comes in with its slave constitution. Maine is brought in as a free state, preserving the delicate balance, and civil war is avoided. Something very similar happens in 1850. Both sides are on the precipice of civil war in 1850, and it's only right once again, sort of on right, bringing forth this Herculean effort to save the Union. Does does Henry Clay, through a series of measures through the pushing through the U.S. Congress, um, succeed in uh, holding off civil war yet again? And in both cases, the question turns on the status of slavery in the territories. Andrew mentioned this earlier in the conversation, um, and I think it's related to the question, Chris, that you that you asked about, um, right? Sort of, sort of the the northern reaction. Um, what we see there from Lincoln, it was always about, as we read in his first inaugural, keeping slavery, preventing the extension of slavery into the territories. Lincoln in the first inaugural says, you know, I have no constitutional authority or inclination to touch slavery in the states where it currently exists, but I will do everything in my power to keep it from spreading into the territories. In the decades leading up to the election of 1860, um, that was the question. That was the only political question that was dividing the union. The question of slavery, or more specifically, the status of, of slavery, the extension of slavery into the territories. In 1820 and 1850, both sides are able to reach a compromise on the, that point. Um, but by the late 1850s, as Lincoln says in his House Divided speech, um, that there is no more room for compromise. Um, how does he put it in the, in the House Divided speech, right? He says, right, I do not expect the nation, um, the union to fall, 
Uh, but I do think that it will cease to be divided. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, that, to me, seems to suggest that uh, although compromise has saved us in the past, um, by the late 1850s, um, a crisis is being approached that may not be able to be avoided again. If I could just add to this, um, I, I, think there's, I think there's two elements um, that go along with what Jason is saying. The first is this. We know that there are far more citizens who live in the free states um, than in the slave states, but slaveholders actually held disproportionate political power all during the uh, 1840s and 50s. And what that means is by ultimately commandeering the Democratic Party, although a national party, um, to cater to slaveholding interests, um, slaveholders and slavery itself was protected in the Union as long as the Democratic Party enjoyed national prestige. The big problem comes when a new uh, political, all you know this, when, when a new political party is born uh, in 1854, whose platform is dedicated entirely to, to the restriction of, of slavery's expansion. That changes the game because as Jason says, there is no more room to compromise over the issue of slavery's expansion. Um, and what does that even mean when, when this new Republican party assumes um, executive and congressional power uh, in 1861? What is it that the president can do? Appoint Supreme Court justices, um, appoint a postmaster general that, that, that can restrict um, or, or enlarge uh, anti-slavery or, or pro-slavery mail. Um, appoint um, generals to the army. What if, I'm speaking from the slaveholders' perspective, what if the U.S. Army is, is transformed into an anti-slavery um, institution? Um, what can Congress do? Obviously, write laws explicitly barring and restricting slavery's expansion. And so the issues are very real. I mean, this is not an, uh, it's not an imagined thing uh, by any means. Um, also, remember what the Republican Party's uh, slogan is in the 1850s. Freedom National, slavery sectional, right? The idea being that slavery is the exception to national life. It's there. We can't touch it in the, in the states where it exists, fine. But it is going to increasingly become the exception, pushed to the margins of national life. Um, and Lincoln, all throughout the 1850s, makes the ideological case for this. Um, there was one aspect of compromise that, that, that might have happened. And they, 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 they came pretty close. Lincoln actually supported what would have been the first 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1861, which would have guaranteed uh, the protection of slavery where it existed. Um, there, of course, the paradox is, is abounding there because that didn't pass. Um, Southerners rejected it um, and some Republicans rejected it. Uh, only for four years later, the, the, the real 13th Amendment banning slavery. But um, and I think uh, Lincoln's reasons for supporting it were would actually probably have confirmed some of the the fears of the southern seceding states. As the, Lincoln was okay with uh, partial emancipation or abolition, perhaps if you want to put it that way, knowing full well that over time the the, the mind of the nation would ultimately move to to extinguish slavery altogether. Right. So yeah, it's a great point. Um, Andrew, I'm really I'm. Glad that you brought in the politics of what's going on here, especially. And Jason, I mean, the statesmanship and the compromise is extremely important. But um, 
if you think about from the perspective, again, with the realignment of the parties or you know, the, the, the collapse of the Whigs, the creation of the new Republican Party, on the Democratic side in the 1850s, um, there are also some growing divisions that I think are worth noting within the Democratic Party. There's a division between, as you, as you all know, the uh, Stephen Douglas popular sovereignty Democrats who, of course, take the position that we're not necessarily in favor of the expansion of slavery in the territories, but we're not opposed to it either, right? If, it, if they want it, they can have it. Uh, for, a, I think, a while, they tend to have sort of control just because of numbers being northern Democrats of the Democratic Party. But there is that part of the Democratic Party, the southern part, you know, that Breckinridge and others ultimately come to represent, which says uh, we're not all that comfortable with popular sovereignty because we prefer actual expansion, right? Popular sovereignty doesn't go far enough in guaranteeing the expansion of slavery. So if you, from the Democratic perspective, you think about the politics after the creation of the Republican Party, in a certain sense, everything seems to be going in the right direction for Southern Democrats uh, in 54, 56, right? Buchanan's elected and Breckinridge is vice president, if I remember correctly, right? Things seem to be going their way in a sense, at, uh, but they're still operating on the doctrine of popular sovereignty as the animating principle of the Democratic Party. Then Dred Scott comes along now, all of a sudden, you've got a Supreme Court decision which seems to support the more uh, pro-expansion position of, of, you know, I just call them sort of like Breckenridge Democrats. And that, uh, and you couple that with what seems like judicial justification of the expansion of slavery, but you, you contrast that with what appears to be a turning tide in Congress in favor of the Republicans, right? So everything seems to be going their way in 54, 56. But then in 58, uh, uh, Democrats lose the majority in the House after the 58 elections. And, and Republicans pick up seats in the Senate, uh, right? Same, and and it, it, I think by 1860, it has actually become pretty clear, even before the election in 1860, that Republicans were going to take Congress and that Lincoln was going to be elected president. Because I don't think, of course, we all know that the Douglas and Breckinridge split the Democratic uh, vote in a way, but it still probably would not have been enough to uh, take away the victory from Lincoln. So the writing is on the wall in a certain sense. Now, the reason I'm going through this sort of laboriously here is because I think that's another bit of evidence to show that that slavery really was the issue that led to the, the ultimate secession, right? When you look at the tide, the direction politics seems to be taking, between 58 and, and 60, uh, pro-slavery, pro-expansion uh, Democrats, uh, they see the writing on the wall. So, you know, why not, if it's inevitable that we're gonna have a Republican Congress and a Republican president, why not split the Democratic Party, make it clear, a, a clear show of unity, at least among Southern states that, you know, we're opposed to this. And then some ways that, you know, I don't want to overdo this, kind of lays the groundwork for unity uh, or prepares the way for a kind of Southern unanimity with regard to secession. So, If I could just add uh, one yeah. quick point. Um, there, there's one, one additional aspect of con uh, context here. Um, wh why, why is it that slaveholders uh, all of a sudden uh, start freaking out about their status in the union? 
when this anti-slavery Republican Party that hasn't acted yet uh, takes takes over. Um, we have to remember that by, oh man, maybe as early as the eight, late 1840s, 1850s, the United States is one of three remaining um, societies in the Western Hemisphere that um, still sanctions slavery. It's, it's the United States, Cuba, and Brazil. Um, the vast majority of the hemisphere had emancipated uh, enslaved labor um, starting in you know, the early 19th century. Slaveholders recognize this, but it's what they attribute to the United States' exceptional standing in the world. Like we are, we are the, the remaining, if not the largest and most powerful slaveholding society in the world. This is what makes us unique. Um, when you have a Republican Party, which white Southerners start to see as this internationalist foreign conspiracy, right, grab hold of the, of the reins of federal power, the fear translates into reality in which slaveholders say, we, we are going to follow the same tide as the French colonies, the British West Indies. And what has happened down there, they say, decay, regression, racial barbarism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is our future in the Union, they say. Um, you, you, you read uh, speeches also by secession commissioners that went to the various southern states to make the case for secession. What are they arguing? If the Republicans take control, uh, we can guarantee you racial amalgamation, miscegenation, race war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the, look at the new world. The history is right there. Um, this is not this is not just some fantasy that we've concocted. We're looking back at history. We're looking at our present. Um, we're next, in other words. Um, so that that's also happening. So that's really an important point to, to keep in mind. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, uh, Billy has a kind of a follow up question, I think, to some of the arguments that were made earlier. Uh, the, talking about the myth of the solid South, right, and whether that's been proven wrong. And he raises the question of why, if slavery was so important in the South, why were there so many counties in various states that voted against secession, right? Does that indicate that there was not, you know, simply blanket, I think he's right, it indicates that there was not simply blanket support for the institution. Can we talk about how, how, do, we, how do we explain the sort of pockets of opposition to secession in parts of the South? Do either of you have some yeah, I can I can give that a shot. I mean, uh, it's a it's a really good question. Um, you know, um, going back to the election of 1860, Lincoln doesn't even appear on the ballot in the majority of, of southern states. I think he only appears on the on, on the ballot in, in two of the 11 states that eventually ended up seceding. One of those was Virginia. Uh, he didn't get many votes anywhere throughout the South, even in those two where he was on the ballot. In Virginia, he gets more votes than any other Southern state, but all those votes come from uh, the counties that eventually will become the state, the new state of West Virginia, right? That will end up, you know, in a, in a, in a strange twist here, right? Seceding from Virginia uh, during the course of the war and joining the Union uh, as a free state. Um, Lincoln gets support in, 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 in that area of, of Virginia. Um, and Lincoln had always pointed out, um, I'm not sure, I'm still not sure whether or not he was right about this or not. Lincoln always said that when you look at all of those so-called seceded states, Lincoln believed that the majority of the people in those states, all of those states with one exception, South Carolina, Lincoln always believed the majority of the people in those states 
were still decidedly pro-union and anti-secession. He didn't cite a lot of evidence for that fact. I'm not sure if, if that's an accurate representation or not. Lincoln even said, you know, probably not South Carolina, but the rest of the states, you know, you probably still have this silent majority who are who are pro-union and, and anti-secession. Uh, there, there may be there may be something to that. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know. I'm still I'm it, still it, not sure to this day. Well, it kind of proved true, of course, in what we call the border states, right? And then right. parts of South Carolina, uh, or sorry, Virginia and Tennessee. I know the eastern part of Tennessee, for example, was extraordinary. Was really pro-union and anti-secession so much so that the, you know the Confederates had to go in and take over by occupation East Tennessee, right, to, to keep them in line. But and you have the four border states like K- Kentucky and Maryland and right. um, Delaware and Missouri, these slave states that are pro-union, right? Um, that. Um, you know, end up staying with the Union throughout the course of the Civil War. And if at any point they had gone over and sided with the Confederacy, the whole war probably would have been lost for, for Lincoln and the Republicans, right? What's the, the apocryphal line from Lincoln? Um, I hope to have God on our side, but I must have Kentucky. Right, right. Yeah. And that reminds me, too, that was another reason why Lincoln supported that initial 13th Amendment uh, that Andrew mentioned earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, along with a compensated emancipation. That's right. Yeah, there's a there, there's a flip side to this as well. Why why some regions uh, oppose secession? Um, take a there, there, there's a county in Mississippi, Adams County. Uh, the county seat is Natchez, which I, I trust you've heard of. It's uh, in the southwestern part of the state, part of the state, right on the Mississippi River. Uh, Adams County was the wealthiest county per capita in the whole country um, in 1860. Um, it this is the heart of the Cotton Kingdom. Adams County voted uh, fairly overwhelmingly against secession. Why? Um, mainly because they weren't crazy. They, they understood that their entire fortune, their security, their, their livelihood was best preserved in the United States. And so they, they flat out rejected uh, leaving it, um, knowing that, that secession and war would be the author of their own destruction. Um, this is what uh, many prominent anti-secessionist Southerners made. Um, this, is a, this is the famous point Sam Houston from, from Texas made. A prominent Southern Democrat slaveholder vehemently opposed secession for this reason. Not only did he believe in the nature of the Union, he did, but he also understood that slavery was best protected in the Union. And what is it that most swiftly and immediately kills slavery in the 19th century it's war. Um, plenty of people understood this, and um, it, it, it speaks to the hubris, if, if we want to go there, um, of, of some of these secessionists. That's a great point. So many great points. We are coming close to the end of our, our time here, so um, try to get one more question and perhaps hear from the chat. Um, have either of you read McPherson's uh, a war that never goes away. Uh, I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with this. If not, we'll skip the question. Um, um, is it, uh, I'm not familiar with the, it. So okay. A war that never goes away. Hold on, just a second. I I don't I don't think that's the name. Um, let me look here. Oh boy. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Um, if not, that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm. I'll I'm ask. A, a different question, try to sort of tie all of this together. 
Uh, Billy kind of asked a similar question. Uh, in general, what's the relevance of, <laughs> what can we take away from, uh, from what we've discussed today and, and sort of circumstances, political and, and economic and social that led to the Civil War? What can we take away from that? And, and it's still, it could still be relevant to us today uh, because I think that was, uh, uh, I think Billy says that was sort of the thrust of this uh, piece by McPherson that he was referencing. And it's still relevant to us today to continue to think about, not just uh, as a kind of exercise in the abstract study of, of history, but that there are lessons that can be taken away from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll say very briefly on that, on that front um, that going back to the way that we see um, Calhoun and Alexander Stevens arguing in, in defense of, of secession. Um, their argument is predicated on a certain understanding of the American founding, right? That looks at American history, that looks at the founders um, in a particular way. That is to say, these guys really believed all men are created equal and they were wrong. Whereas other Folks that uh, have been mentioned throughout the course of the discussion, like Stephen A. Douglas, uh, particularly Roger Tawney, uh, Lincoln said, right, Tawney was the first person in Douglas, Stephen Douglas, the second person to argue that when the founders said all men are created equal, they didn't really mean it, which, of course, is the popular view of the American founding today and the view that you find in a lot of your textbooks. You find the, the Tawney view, the Stephen Douglas view of the American founding in our textbooks. What you don't find today somehow the, the Lincoln and Frederick Douglass view of the founding, that the founders really believed all men are created equal. And they looked at slavery as a, as a moral violation of the laws of nature and nature's God. Um, that the founders really believed all men are created equal, and they despised slavery on moral grounds. Now, right, that's a whole different conversation on the founding and slavery. Well, why do some founders then continue to hold slaves even though they believe it to be um, morally wrong and unjust fundamentally? That's another conversation, though. But what we see here is what led up to the, the Civil War was this breaking apart of the American mind, the American soul, the American heart between the Calhoun and uh Alexander Stevens School, the Stephen Douglas and Roger Taney School, and the Lincoln Frederick Douglas School, having three fundamentally different interpretations of the American founding and American history. We're seeing something similar in the modern day, I think. Our past and say, how ought we to understand ourselves and from where we've come and where we've come from? And I think we're starting to fall into different camps and understanding our past in, in different ways. That is not that is not new. That happened before. It happened from the 1820s up to the 1850s and culminated in civil war. Now, I'm not saying that's where we're heading, but I am saying that the, the, the American mind is starting to again sort of split over these fundamental questions regarding what is, what is the nature of our history and is that history a good one um, or not? Or what is the best way to understand the Amer um, American history? That question you know, led to the division in the American mind leading up to the Civil War. And we're, we're starting to see that again. It's an important question. Who do we side with? Is it, you know, Steve, is it Stevens and Calhoun? Is it Tawney and Steve Douglas? Or is it Abraham Lincoln and Fred Douglas? That's a serious question that, that all Americans should, should think about and, and answer for themselves. I'll just add very quickly, because I know the time's up. 
Um, I couldn't agree more with what with what Jason is saying. I think there's a corollary to this as well. Uh, the lack of faith in institutions that um, seem to be percolating uh, uh, across the entire American body politic, I find to be extremely disconcerting. Um, it is not the institutions, in my opinion, that is our problem. It is, well, I'm not going to get into what I think the problem is, but but Lincoln, Lincoln's whole premise, um, I think, in the first inaugural and the July 4th address is really rooted in the, the, the process, the system, the institutions are sound if we recognize their legitimacy. If we don't, then we have a problem. Um, and I would just... I would just implore everybody to to treat uh, what's going to happen in four weeks with legitimacy. Let the system work. Um, uh, what, what does he say? Something about ballots are superior to bullets. He, he's not wrong. Um, so, yeah, yeah, great. Gentlemen, I, I thank you for those uh, very thoughtful closing remarks. That was uh, extraordinarily appropriate to, to wrap this discussion up. And I want to thank you both for your time and uh, and your insights into this question and the way in which you handled it very, very judiciously, because this could be, uh, if not handled carefully, this could be a, 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 a very passionate question. So uh, thank you very much. Very insightful. And I have, as always, learned a great deal from from our conversation. So thank you very much. Sincerely. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everybody uh, who joined us and submitted some fantastic questions. Um, You'll receive an email uh, within the next week or so with a link uh, that you can click on to get your certificate of participation. Uh, you'll also have access to the audio and video uh, recordings of this session uh, for your use. Uh, please check the other resources, look into the other resources that teachingamericanhistory.org provides. Uh, lots of great resources uh, for teachers and citizens and anybody else who's interested in thinking about their country. So our next webinar will be Saturday, November 7th, and we will consider the question, how did the progressives differ from the founders? So building on some of the things we talked on today, uh, we will move into that next topic then. Until then, take care, and I hope to see you at our next webinar. Thank you. You can learn more about our free resources for teachers, students, and citizens at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org.